Before we get into Genesis chapter 18, I just want to take a few minutes. We did want to do something a little different. And I want to kind of discuss something very relevant to our ministry. One of the difficult things about our approach to the Bible, specifically the book of Genesis, is that our approach doesn't exactly fit into any of the conventional approaches taken by the majority of Bible uh, teachers. Traditionally, churches that prioritize teaching expositionally, that's a fancy way of saying verse by verse, chapter by chapter, going through the Bible in such a format. Most of the churches that that teach expositionally, they would approach a book like Genesis in a non-Sunday morning service. Uh, As a matter of fact, the vast majority of through the Bible studies uh, that you're going to come across, whether it's on the internet or the churches or podcasts, whatnot, you're going to find that those studies, a genuine, traditional, through the Bible exposition, they take place on like a Wednesday night or a Sunday night. They last about 50 minutes to an hour to effectively uh, go through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Even the churches that you find that decide to teach through a book like Genesis on a Sunday morning, they're not going to do it the way that we're doing it. They'll typically approach a book like this in what we would call a topical format. Instead of teaching every part of the text, these pastors who take such a model will take like the next section of the book of Genesis and craft it into a topically themed message, something that can be easily digested and can be kind of packaged nicely into one basic thesis statement. Uh, And the reason that they do this is that church growth gurus, whoever they are, they believe and teach that the majority of Christians that come to church on a Sunday only have the attention span of about 30 minutes and are only dense enough to process one thought a week. You think I'm kidding. That's actually the model behind a 30-minute three-point Bible study. Now, during all of my years at Calvary Chapel, while most of the pastors that I know employ these two traditional formats, kind of a topical on Sunday morning, but on a Wednesday night, a Sunday night, a more expansive through the Bible study, I always heard pastors do this. And when they were approached about which service they should really go to, I even heard my dad say it all the time. They would recommend, if you really want the meat and potatoes, forget about Sunday morning, come to the through the Bible study which always kind of blew my mind because it's like, if that's where the meat and potatoes are, why don't we do that on Sunday morning? Like, why not do that when people are there? Like when people come, not Sunday night, not a Wednesday night. Like I completely agree with that particular position. Now I know that I am probably very much not in the norm, especially with my age, presentation and whatnot. But I really do believe with all of my heart that teaching through the Bible, in order to allow the Bible to speak for itself, is not only raw and radical, but I think it's revolutionarily authentic. In such a format, like we're taking with Genesis, yes, it's going to take us a while to get through the book, but I think in taking this approach, you can't avoid topics of controversy, nor can you intentionally skip aspects of following Jesus that aren't touchy-feely and easily palpable. But I think that that's not to be feared. 
I think it's to be appreciated. It's to be embraced. You see, going through the Bible in such a way, it not only provided me my theology, but going through the Bible is ultimately how I came to know, love, and give my life to Jesus Christ. You see, I'm convinced that teaching the whole Bible will not only yield a transformation within a person, but from a very practical church standpoint, I think it's what makes what we're doing at Calvary 316 unique. I think that's why many of you are here. This is why, from our inception, our main Sunday service focuses on teaching a bona fide through the Bible study. Now, there are times that I'll take a break, address a topic that might be relevant, even as we're going through Genesis, if the text lends itself to more time and development to a central idea, we'll take the time to do that. We'll approach God's word as God's word demands we approach it. But that said, I need you to know this approach that we take on a Sunday morning, even as it pertains to a large book like Genesis, it's not going to lend itself always to an easy three-point message it's not going to lend itself to nice bullet points or even thematic consistency like this morning. We're going to work our way through a text and end up covering all kinds of different interesting topics. In a sense, this is kind of a buckshot approach to the Bible. You go through the Bible, you lock, you load, you fire, and it's going to spread and hit all kinds of different things because that's what the Bible does. And while I'm okay with taking this approach, and I think many of you are, I want you to know, and I'm going to do something a little different this morning. If you desire one thought to chew on, or a uber-polished presentation of one singular concept, if you just want 30 minutes, just give me a nugget. I just want a nugget. That's all I, if, if that's you, then we're not the church for you. And that's fine. Because there are a lot of churches that present one nugget really well. But we're taking a more expansive approach to Scripture because I really do believe that if you want to know the Bible, that if you believe this morning that it's the Word of God, not some pastor's opinion of the Word of God or interpretation of the Word of God, but the actual Word of God is alive and powerful. If you believe that that Word has the ability to change you, which you need to be changed. If you believe that, if you believe that an increase in your knowledge of God will deepen your relationship with God, if that's you, then this morning you find yourself at the right place. So Genesis 18. Appreciate you indulging me. Something on my heart. I wanted to reiterate, explaining our vision and our mission, that is by teaching the whole Bible, Jesus transforms you into a whole Christian who can go out those doors and reach the world. That's our model. That's our mission. That's why we exist. So let's just get with it. Chapter 18, beginning with verse 1. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham by the terabith trees of Merimee, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. <laughs> pause for a minute, and just kind of establish a little bit of a time frame here. As we'll soon see from our text, it's likely this event took place sometime in the few months that followed the close of the previous chapter, chapter 17. 
the reiteration of this promise that Abraham and Sarah are going to have a child. Additionally, from the verse and a half we just read, the location of the scene is also worthy of note. Abraham is chilling out by the terabith trees of Merimi. This was a location in southern Israel, west of what's today known as the Dead Sea, out in the desert area. We're told that he's sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he looks up and he sees three men quickly approaching, seemingly out of nowhere. Matter of fact, the Hebrew grammar indicates that their approach was both abrupt and unexpected. Abram and Merami, desert terrain, he would have been able to see anyone approach from a distance. He's sitting at the, the door of the tent. He's looking out, sitting in some shade, drinking some sweet tea and lemonade, an Arnold Palmer, enjoying the day. He's looking out. He could see someone approaching, and yet this is weird because, boom, out of nowhere, three men appear. It's unique. It catches his attention. He doesn't see them coming. They come out of nowhere. Now, to this point, later in the text, we're, gonna, we're going to learn that these three men, not actually men in, in the conventional sense at all, they're actually two angels, we're going to learn later, as well as the Lord. We're told that the Lord appeared to Abram. Now, keep in mind, and this is important to understand the passage, what's happening is not that Abram's receiving a vision. Now, he's, he's received a vision before where the Lord appears to him in such a way, such a manner. This is different. It's not some spiritual experience that Abraham is going to be having. These are three literal people that are coming to have a physical, actual conversation, interaction, exchange with Abraham. So much so that we know this is not a vision. We know it's not something happening in the spiritual dimension because they're going to audibly speak to Abraham to the point that Sarah overhears the conversation. Additionally, they're going to have their feet washed and they're going to eat food, not something that just spirits do. Now, while the Bible presents angels as being spiritual in nature, I hope you know that the scriptures also tell us that angels have the ability to take on physical appearances. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, we're told, Do not forget to entertain strangers. Why? For by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. That's a trippy thought, right? That at some point, you did something kind to another person that wasn't actually a person, but was an angel, an angelic being. We know that they have that ability. So two of these Men are angels in a physical appearance. They eat food. They speak to Abraham. But aside from them, what's most amazing about this passage is that we also once again have another physical manifestation of God appearing and interacting in a very real and tangible way with Abraham. Like This is what the text is telling us. It is safe to say that Jesus as the second member of the Holy Trinity, at this juncture in our travels through Genesis, it's safe to say that Jesus was actively involved in the affairs of men long before 
He came as a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. This third person interacting with Abraham, keep in mind, it's Jesus. It is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. We call it a Christophany. I know that's trippy, but you know, it actually provides some context to something trippy that Jesus said. In, in John chapter 8, Jesus made a very bizarre statement. John chapter 8, specifically verses 56 through 59. I'll read it for you. You don't have to turn there. But Jesus said to the, the Jewish leaders, he said this, quote, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And when he saw it, he was glad. And the Jews said to Jesus, You're not 50 years old. You've seen Abraham? Like they're perplexed by this. So Jesus then says to them, most assuredly, I say to you, basically, write it down. It's the truth. It's a fact. Take it to the bank. Before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> and they understand what he's saying, so much so that we're told they t pick up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself, went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and passed by. This is Jesus <laughs> eating and breaking bread and interacting with Abraham. We continue. So Abraham sees them, and he runs from the, the tent door to meet them. He bowed himself to the ground, and he says, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Please, let a little water be brought. Wash your feet, rest yourselves under the tree. I'll bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you can pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you've said. Now it's clear from Abraham's reaction as to the appearing of these three men that he recognizes that this is just not like normal sojourners. We don't know how he recognizes something is different here, but he does because he does something very unconventional. As a distinguished, older, Middle Eastern man, this picture of him jumping up, running from the tent door to meet them, only to then bow himself to the ground, that act informs the reader that at least from Abraham's perspective, he recognized that these three men were incredibly important. I love the fact that in recognizing this reality, Abraham goes out of his way to not only show hospitality, but to invite them to stay for supper. Here's Abraham, presented with a chance to fellowship with God, to have God at his dinner table. And what does he do? He does everything he can to capitalize on the moment. And how amazing it is that Jesus actually allows Abraham the opportunity to serve and bless him. Like, it's great that Abraham took advantage of the opportunity, but the fact that Jesus provided Abraham, who, by the way, if you've been with us, is not like the gold star candidate. Like, he's repeatedly shown himself to be a knucklehead. And yet Jesus is like, yeah, hey, let's break bread. Let's hang out. Let's spend time with one another. 
Jesus, man, the creator and sustainer of the universe, had no problems gracing Abraham's tent and table with his presence. And if God would do such a thing with Abraham, from what we know of Abraham, ah, he'd love to do the same with you. It never ceases to amaze me that we not only have an opportunity to worship God, to serve God, but what blows my mind is that he lets us. He knows us, and he still lets us. That's amazing. God's grace. Verse 6, so Abraham, he hurried into the tent to Sarah. He says, quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal. Knead it, make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man. Abraham hastened, he prepared it. He took butter and milk, the calf which he had prepared, and he sets it before these three men. And he stands by them under the tree as they ate. You know, I have to take just a quick moment and give Sarah her due. Like her husband brings home three unexpected dinner guests, unannounced. This was not prearranged. It wasn't on the joint Google calendar. He just brings three buddies home. And what does he want? He wants Sarah to drop what she's doing, to put down the remote. After she's fed everybody else, and he wants her to make a meal, to fix up a meal with all of the trimmings. And you know what she does? She gives it to him good. I can't believe you're being this. No. She just rolls with it. Now, ladies, I know that when your husband brings home one of his buddies or one of his buddies just drops by without warning, gets invited to come over and watch the game, and you weren't informed in advance, it just happens. I know that's totally annoying incredibly annoying, if not downright frustrating. Speaking to myself and my wife presently. But I do need to say this. Sure, such a pattern of behavior, not the best thing. But you never know when what you perceive to be unexpected company ends up being a divine appointment. You, You don't know that. You never know. Like, ultimately, this is what you have to decide. If you want your home to be a lighthouse, then you should never find yourself surprised when a weary traveler inevitably washes upon your shore. That's why you exist. It was unexpected, but it was divine. And you know what? What I also like from this is a home of hospitality, a hospitable home. You know, it only exists when both the husband and the wife work together as partners. Yes, Abraham rushes in, grabs Sarah. You need to make cake, which is great. But he didn't then just sit back, kick his feet up. No, what what does Abraham do? He's more than willing to to contribute, to jump in the mix, 
to also carry some weight. He prepares the rest of the meal. What we have here is a single unit, Sarah and Abraham, working together to prepare a feast for Jesus. You know, the other detail about this passage that leaps off the page is the meal that Abraham presents to his guests. Like we're told that he serves them. Look at, look at the text again, very specifically. We're told he served them butter and milk and the calf. Now, you might not know this just through a cursory reading, but according to the Mosaic law, which would come later, this particular meal of, of butter, milk, and the calf would be classified by the law as being non-kosher. Like, it, it would have been against the law of God. It would have broken the law, this particular meal. And why? The law specifically forbid the combining of meat and milk. And yet, here's Abraham serving this meal to distinguished guests. Now, though it's clear the workaround to this obvious problem is that this particular event predated the restrictions that were laid out in the law, that Abraham just didn't know about it at that point. If he had, he wouldn't have done it. And yet, what's interesting is the Jewish Talmud complicates the issue because it makes this claim that Abraham was righteous for one reason. The Talmud says that Abraham was righteous because he kept all of the Torah, including the kosher laws, even though these things didn't exist and he wasn't commanded to. That's the Jewish position concerning the essence of Abraham's righteousness. Now, before I continue along this, this line of thought, you need to keep in mind that the Jewish people had placed in, in Jesus' day, and even as of right now, they placed their right standing, their unique status before God. Upon two things, one, circumcision, and two, the dietary laws. This is why Paul and both Jesus, and P this is why they're constantly dealing with these two topics, because it was the essence of their righteousness. They were all good with God because they had been circumcised and there were things they didn't eat. That was the essence of their righteousness. And yet, what they failed to understand was that Abraham, as we've seen, he was declared righteous by God way before he was ever circumcised. And not only that, but was still a righteous man, though this passage is clear, he violated the dietary restrictions. Well, the legalist will point out, Zach, if you, if you notice, Abraham didn't actually eat the meal he gave to his guests. You see, he prepped it, served it, but he stood under the tree as they ate. Okay, duly noted. But this perspective dismisses two key realities. First, in nomadic culture, it was customary that if you had guests come into your tent, you made a meal, you served it to your guests, you let them eat first. Why? Because you want to make sure that they can get their fill before you eat. Just because we're, we're told he stands by doesn't mean he didn't eat afterwards. Presumably, the text in he presents a meal that he's going to eat. He just stands by, as was normal in nomadic cultures, allowing his guests to eat first. But even then, let's just concede, he doesn't eat the meal. How then do you explain the fact that Jesus 
ends up eating this non-kosher meal, and it doesn't seem to have defiled him in the slightest. Like, understand, the reason this is important is that like the Jews, Christians, legalists, they love to emphasize the role of a person's activities and their relation to personal righteousness. They love to point to things that they do or don't do, things that they eat or don't eat, drink or don't drink, exercises they engage in. We like to point as legalists to things, our works as the basis of being all good with God. It's this trend. It happens in addition to the work of Jesus on the cross. The legalist stresses obedience to the law of God as being the mechanism of achieving greater holiness. The easiest way to kind of provide an example of how this occurs, this legalistic mindset, has been to address the church's prohibition of alcohol. Now, the logic follows that the person who abstains from drinking is logically more righteous in the eyes of God than the person who, who does drink. Like that's, that's the basis of the prohibition. That somehow it, it erodes your holiness, your right standing, that it's an act. The problem with this perspective is that it ignores the fact that what a person eats and what a person drinks, in addition to what a person does, has no basis on a person's righteousness. They're standing before God, their holiness. This, this is why when arguing with the leaders of his day about their warping of the law, Jesus made this point in Mark chapter 7, verse 16. I'll read it for you. He says, Jesus, that nothing that enters a man from outside can defile him. But the things that come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. See, what Jesus is making clear is that who you are, the heart, is significantly more relevant than what you do. Now, along this line of thinking and discussing the nature of Christian liberty, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake, and he's talking about eating and drinking certain things, if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the things which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Paul says, do it all to the glory of God. Like, this is why at Calvary 316, our position on drinking is very simple. Very simple. Make sure, Christian, that both what you drink and how you drink, bring glory to God. That's the rule of thumb. If your conscience says that you shouldn't drink anything, then go for it. That's great. But in regards to your holiness, it has no bearing. That we're all to follow our own conscience. That what you drink and how you drink bring glory to God. That is the rule of thumb. Now, while I'm on this topic, I don't want to be a dead horse. I do want to point out that aside from drinking himself, Jesus actually used drinking and eating as tools for reaching the lost. You see, for Jesus, you can make the case 
that the table, the place of eating and drinking, community, ended up being the very locale where Jesus connected with the sinner and in the process broke down religious walls. The table was a place that Jesus was able to connect with his fellow man. In Mark chapter 2, verse 16, we read, quote, When the scribes and Pharisees saw Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to Jesus' disciples, How is that that he eats and drinks with these people? They couldn't believe it. They couldn't wrap their brain around it. These legalists couldn't understand why Jesus would do such a thing. But you know, this is what they failed to see. Jesus' approach was reaching a multitude of people they weren't reaching. He said right after this that those who are well have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. And you know, that particular approach, that strategy, for Jesus, for us, it came with accusations. Matter of fact, in Matthew 11, verse 19, we're told, again, that the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and that his detractors accused him of being, quote, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Oh, to be known as a friend of the lost, when our very mission is to reach the lost. The table. I don't know in your life, but I know in mine, has provided a wonderful avenue to meet people to talk with people, to minister to people. Oh, our kitchen table, it is the center of our ministry, as many of you who have frequented it can attest. Well, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you, this being the Lord speaking, according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening, and the door of the tent was behind him. We're told Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Now, after dinner, the purpose of this visit begins to come into view when the Lord turns the topic of conversation onto Sarah. The Lord affirms again to Abraham that, quote, according to the time of life, more than likely a reference to nine months, Sarah would have a son. Now, no doubt, the text once again informs us that this was a miraculous thing, seeing as though both Abraham and Sarah were old. That, that, that word implies that they were elderly, that they were well advanced in age, which means that they were stricken by age from conceiving, and that Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, meaning that she no longer has a cycle, literally, or that she's through menopause. What's being said here by the Lord is you two, cats, are going to have a baby, which is crazy because there's nothing in the physical world that says that's possible. So for it to be possible, it'll have to occur supernaturally. Therefore, verse 12, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, once again to herself, after I've grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord also being old? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, surely 
uh, shall I surely bear a child since I'm old? Is, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return. According to the time, Sarah will have a son. But Sarah, and you can kind of see the picture, right? She's back in the tent. She jumps into the fray. She denies it. She said, whoa, 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 I didn't laugh. For she was afraid. But Jesus said, nope, you did laugh. It's kind of like that proverbial bum, bum, bum should be after the text. Sarah, we're told, laughed within herself. Which begs the question, was this laugh a laugh of unbelief? Was it a laugh that what she had just heard was so outlandish that she found it comical? Or was this laugh similar to what we saw in the previous chapter when Abraham is so completely overcome with wonderment at this promise of God that he couldn't help but chuckle? I believe it's the latter. Consider, and and this was something I had never seen before that jumped out to me. Consider this is the first time that Sarah has heard this particular promise directly from the lips of God. Like up until this point, it seems that God had only spoken to Abraham, meaning then it was his responsibility to relay these promises to his wife. (laughs) God told you what, honey? Sure. Okay. But now she's hearing this promise from the lips of God. There is now no doubt that everything that Abraham has been saying for the last 15 years is true. It's been confirmed. As Sarah ponders the incredible nature of this promise, we read, she laughs within herself. She's thinking this through. But the Lord, the Lord doesn't ask Sarah why she laughed. Did, did you notice that from the text? Instead, we're told that the Lord asked Abraham why Sarah laughed. Before then pointing out that the promise shouldn't really be all that hard to understand, to accept, when you place it in the context that there's nothing too hard for the Lord. Honestly, well, we can all understand what made this situation with Abraham and Sarah unique. Isn't it a truth that every human conception, every day of those nine months where a child is developed, the birth You know, every part of it is a miracle. Like the fact that that even can happen is a supernatural work of God. Whether it happens in a young person or an old person, the fact it happens at all is mind-blowing. Everything that goes into that, the design behind it, it's a work of God. It's amazing. But you know, I think there's another reason that this wasn't a laugh of unbelief. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're told this. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. She bore a child when she was past the age. And this is why we're told, because she, Sarah, judged him faithful who had promised. Like at what point in her life had Sarah judged Jesus faithful who had promised? 
I think the only logical place that that was occurring is in this very passage. Furthermore, this statement that Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh or she was afraid, but he says, no, you did. You know, I think that ends up being misconstrued because we assume Sarah's laughter was a bad thing. I don't think it was a bad thing at all. I don't think that her problem in this passage is that she laughed. I think the problem is that she denied that she had laughed. Like if this is the, the correct interpretation of what's taking place here, God's reply to Sarah's denial, it takes on a whole different level of meaning. This statement, no, you did laugh, was not God rebuking her. It wasn't God calling her out behind the veil. Rather, this is God's way of, of just letting Sarah know that that reaction, wonderment, amazement, that laughter about the promises of God, that that was normal, that it was okay, that it was encouraged. Sarah could be giddy with excitement. You know, Christian, it's okay to laugh, to find the work of God funny. You know, it's a good thing to laugh, to find enjoyment. Because I think it's evidence that you also recognize <laughs> there's nothing too hard for the Lord. I think you get it. Like that it's natural to laugh in amazement at the work that God is accomplishing through your life. Last night I had, I had a unique opportunity to laugh at the work of God. We were delighted with the opportunity to have JB and, and Rebecca. They came over and, and we cooked turkey and gumbo. We just had a great time hanging. Do you know how I know JB and Rebecca? A lot of you don't. I got a phone call from some random dude in Louisiana whose coworker, her son, was getting married but didn't have anyone to do it, and he was cold calling, called 15 churches. I was the only one that called him back. And I said, sure, I would love to do their, their wedding. Why don't you pass along my number and go for it? JB calls me, says, hey, we don't go to church anywhere. We're looking for someone to get us hitched. And I said, that's great. What's your expectation? Well, the only background we have is Catholicism. I'm like, you should really come to church first <laughs> because I might not be the right person to do your wedding. <laughs> they came, and they've been coming ever since. And last night, I'm sitting there around a fire, the pot of gumbo, enjoying my friends. The only reason that they're there is because I answered a phone call. That's comical. That's funny. When I look around this place and see the weird, eclectic group of people God has put together, that's also funny. The fact that we're making up his church is funny, and it's okay to laugh. Then the men rose from there, looked towards Sodom. Abraham went with them, send them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. As these three men prepare to leave, Jesus decides 
to bring Abraham into the loop as it pertains to his plan, what's about to follow. But look at the reason that God, that Jesus makes the decision to bring Abraham into the loop. Don't miss this. He says, quote, Abraham will command his children in the way of the Lord. Like, don't miss what's happening. Because Jesus knew that Abraham was going to tell his kids all about Jesus, all about the Lord, knowing that he was about to go and judge Sodom and Gomorrah, God decides to bring Abraham into the logic behind his plan for this reason. He wants to make sure as Abraham communicates his plans to his kids, his person to his kids, who God is to his kids, that he has the whole picture. That he understands the reason why judgment was necessary. That he knew it wasn't wrath for wrath, but that there was a point behind it. On a side note, men, please know that the surest way to deepen your relationship and experience with God. If you want to take your relationship with Jesus to another level, if you want your walk with God to deepen, let me give you a clue, a little, a little tip. If you make it your priority to teach the things you learn about Jesus to your children, Jesus will make sure you learn a lot about him. You see, if you make it your job to teach your kids what it truly means to keep the way of the Lord, to walk in his grace, if you teach them what it really means to live a righteous life, Jesus promises to personally equip you for the task at hand. Man, that's an awesome promise. So the Lord said to Abraham, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that is against, against them what's come to me, if not I will know. Now it's, now it's interesting. But there seems to be two reasons that the Lord is going to visit and later destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. We're not going to get to it all, but we'll just kind of set the stage for next Sunday. First, we read that their sin was very grave. This Hebrew word grave, it means to be heavy to the point of, of becoming unresponsive. Now keep in mind, Sodom and Gomorrah, these cities, their residents, they weren't in blind rebellion against God. It wasn't as though they were ignorant of the truth. Just a few chapters ago, these folks were saved by Abraham and the God Abraham served. You see, Sodom's actions were egregious because they were in rebellion to truth. They were rebelling against the light. They had been given a warning, God's revelation, that there was a better way. Abraham... And yet, they had returned to their wickedness. And it's because of that. That the very God who had previously delivered them from judgment was now about to judge them himself. But this wasn't the only reason. We're also told, quote, the outcry against them was great. Their sin was grave, but the outcry was great. This word outcry, it implies a cry of distress. What this means is that the cry the cries of those who had been abused by their perversions, the cries of those who had been taken advantage of by their corrupt system, the cries of those who had been victimized by this sinful and wicked culture. It was their cries of anguish that had reached the throne of God and now necessitated God act sooner than later. 
Now, so often when we talk about the judgment of God, the focus ends up being on how that judgment affects the wicked. And yet the problem with this is that we don't balance that perspective with the reality that God's judgment is equally administered on behalf of the innocent victim as well. Justice for the wronged is an equal part of the equation when it comes to his judgment. Now, for the sake of time, this is where we're going to stop this morning. But I want to very quickly just recap the themes that have emerged. Some of the things we saw. First, please realize, I hope you know this. Jesus is here this morning to meet with you. Like, don't, don't let your Bible familiarity, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me. Like, don't let the, the just... Jesus wants to meet with you this morning. That is the most radical words any human being could ever, ever, ever utter. But it's true. May I ask, because we're going to worship in just a minute. Like Abraham, are you ready to meet with him? Are you, like Abraham, willing to forsake pride, to maybe lay aside formality? Are you willing to run, to fall at his feet, to invite him? to have an exchange with you. Secondly, I want to challenge you, especially this time of year. Is your home a place of hospitality? Are you and your spouse on the same page working together as a cohesive unit? Is your home a lighthouse for the lost, a hospital for the sick? Is your table open to the sinner? You never know when what you perceive to be unexpected company ends up being a divine appointment. Thirdly, how awesome is it that what you eat, what you drink, what you do has no bearing on who you are, that you are righteous for one reason. Jesus came and he died and he bled and he satisfied the righteous requirements of your sin. That we have been given this gift, that God yields through us what could never be yielded through the natural self. That God's promises are sure that he will accomplish the work that he said, that his plans for you, I hope you know, are infinitely greater than anything you can imagine. And it doesn't matter how old you are. The most powerful time in Abraham's life where God is going to work in the most radical way was not when Abraham was a young man. It was when he retired. It was when he was old. I hear it too frequently that ministry is a young man's job. No, it's all of our job. But if you're old, older, we'll just say seasoned, I hope you know that God wants to use these years in a way that will blow your mind. <laughs> Maybe even in a way that you'll find funny. Men, if you dedicate yourself to teaching your children about the Lord, Jesus will honor that decision by equipping you for the task. That's a promise. Because Abraham made that a priority. God took it upon himself to reveal to Abraham his plans in a real and radical way. And finally, this morning, the world stinks. It's cruel. 
unusually cruel. It's difficult. It's not sugar-coated. Following Jesus doesn't even make it easier. It makes it tougher, more difficult, harder. If you're a victim this morning, if the world has ripped you off, chewed you up, spit you out, as it has and will, I want you to know this morning. Close with this thought, because, man, it will drive you to your knees and worship God. God hears your cry. He hears you. But beyond that, whether it's in this life or the one to come, he will act upon that cry. That he will right every wrong. The, the statement, God, why? That's so short, short-sighted. He's like, I'm taking notes. I will deal with it. He will work in your life. My youth pastor, growing up, after the third consecutive weekend of us toilet papering his house, <laughs> came out on the front porch, looked out into the darkness. He says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And then he, then he said something that's not biblical, but funny. He says, and I'm his instrument. <laughs> I hope you know. Vengeance is the Lord's. That he is just. And he hears your cry, and he will act when it's time. Will you trust him? Well, there's lots there. Lots to unpack, lots to chew on and marinate. So Andy, if you and Carmen could come up, they're going to lead us in just two more songs of worship.